0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. It's a pleasure to uh, share the Word with you this morning. Uh, It's quite an honor. I I enjoy preparing, uh, taking critical time, and, and just studying a section of text. And it's very enriching, and I hope that comes through to you today. The text today doesn't need a whole lot of passion from me. Uh, I think it speaks for itself. I do want to set the context a little bit. As you guys know, uh, if you've been here for a while, as, as Mark has been taught, uh, the author Mark uses contrasts, and he didn't have to make the contrasts up. The gospel, by its nature and the time that he's talking about, is full of irony and it's full of contrasts. But he specifically uses it as a literary technique to emphasize things, and today is no different. Um, What we're going to emphasize today will be made clear as we go through the text, but I think it's important that we read a section of the Old Testament from Isaiah to really set the context of the overarching passage from, from Jesus' perspective. We're going to cover three different paracopes and in some regards they're not necessarily linked in other ways they are. And so if you needed a title for this I would say the first will become last. Um, it's going to be a kingdom oriented text uh, and I think that 's the the overall intent of Mark matthew Luke spend chapters and chapters discussing the, the gospel or the, the kingdom of God and trying to explain it. Mark, in conciseness, takes about a chapter and a half, and so we 're right in the middle of chapter ten or we 're near the or i guess we 're ending chapter ten and Half of chapter 9 and chapter 10 is really where he focuses on the kingdom of God. And one of the primary um, summary statements of the kingdom can be said, the first will be last and the last will be first. And so with that, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this church. You have been faithful to heritage and you are faithful to heritage. we We thank you for keeping us here. We thank you for the opportunity to serve this community. We thank you for the the opportunity to be a kingdom outpost for the king of uh, the world, the king of the universe, Jesus of Nazareth. And as we review and study Mark today, Father, I pray that your spirit and your truth and your word Just move in our minds, in our hearts. Uh, Those of us here, those of us streaming, um, those yet to hear it. Glorify yourself, Father, and glorify your Son. In his name we pray, Amen. So, we're going to, if you want to turn there, we're going to be in Isaiah 53. But before we get there, I want to actually set up Isaiah 53. Um, And that's from a couple verses in the very first chapter of Isaiah. So what I'm going to read to you is Isaiah's summary analysis, if you will, of the nation of Israel. And you have to remember this is written around 700 B.C., quite a while ago. Even before Jesus' time, it was, it was 700 years. He says this, in verse, starting in verse 5, Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the soul of your heart to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Not a pretty picture, one of Uh, decimation, one of sorrow, one of pain, uh, full of idolatry. Into that, in chapter 33, which many of you know is a suffering servant passage, God, Yahweh, speaks of His strong arm. And His strong arm in this context is salvation. So He says this, Verse 1, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, this would be the suffering servant, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one who, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let me pause there. And that's just as true today as it was 700 B.C. Each one of us has gone astray. Each one of us is autonomous. We serve our own needs. We serve and rule ourselves. Let me skip ahead to verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand after the suffering of his soul for the transgressors. He was a substitute. That's going to come out today in our text. So now let's go flip over to Mark 10. We're going to be in verses 32 through 30, uh, 52. Sorry. And it's going to be important um, that we have that as the backdrop because what's what Mark is going to lay out is the, how do I say this kindly, the, the lack of understanding of this by the, on the part of the disciples, they don't get this, what we just read. They did not, even though they understood Isaiah and they had uh, access to these scriptures, they did not understand that Jesus was a suffering servant. They completely got the fact that he was a Messiah. Matter of fact, they were all ready for that. They missed this part of it, though. And so what it comes down to is they didn't understand his kingdom. And I think today we have that same issue. So we're going to get into all that. Um, Enough with the introduction. Let's start reading. We're going to read. I'm going to read a paracope, and then I'm going to teach through it, and then I'll read the next one, okay? So bear with me. Verse 32 through 34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him three days later he will rise so let's look at that in a little bit of detail what is this idea of them being astonished and afraid well you have the disciples they're on their way they know uh they've left galilee they're going down towards jericho on their way up to jerusalem um, Jerusalem is the goal, it's, it's the, the end, so to speak, it's Passover. Um, this is the third time Jesus will have said he's going to die. This is what's called the third passion statement of Jesus. And we find in Luke, uh, who gives a parallel account of this, I'll just read, read to you what Luke says, right after that, verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. So three strikes and you're out type rule, right? This is the third time. He gives more information each time. This is even more humiliating in the sense that for a Jew to be killed by the Jews is bad enough. To be killed by Gentiles is humiliation at its worst. And by the Gentiles here, he means Rome. And so Jesus has this at the forefront of his mind. So he's, they're, they're walking every day. He's leading this little group of people. He's got the disciples, and then there's a, a growing group behind him. Um, but they're all following him on this road. And I think what the, the astonishment and the fear is, is Jesus is getting more and more silent. He's getting more and more focused. He's getting more and more um, consumed by the events that are going to take place in the Passion Week, ultimately his crucifixion. And so he's probably walking a little faster, swinging his arms a little more, maybe being a little bit more short with his responses. Um, And this is causing the whole group a little bit of stress and certainly fear among the, those that aren't, weren't used to being around Jesus. So that's the mood, if you will, that Mark is trying to describe. And then there's the the actual predictions again of Jesus. This is what's going to happen. And they didn't understand at all. Um, let's move into the next section, which is 35 through 45. And we'll take apart this in... Let me read it all the way through, and then we'll come back and go through it. This is, we're going to spend some time in this section. Then James and John, the sons of Debedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. So let me go ahead and stop. I, I can't go past that. So <laughs> how many have kids that have asked <laughs> this type of a question? Or how many of us have asked Jesus the wrong question? How many of us don't ask the right question? This is one of the contrasts that we're going to have between what James and, and uh, John ask versus what the blind beggar asks. Um, it's, it's fascinating. We don't understand the kingdom either as much as we might think we do. I know I don't. And I know there's times I ask the wrong questions to Jesus. They're actually not really biblical questions. And yet, for me, they seem quite logical, Um, but there's not a response. But what does Jesus do? He's a little stressed. He's got a few things on his mind, and here's two of his primary disciples asking for this. He's very calm, very uh, compassionate. He said, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So we we need to recall James and John and Peter were the three, the inner three, right? They were the ones that went up on the transfiguration. They alone, of all of the disciples, have seen Jesus fully glorified. So they have sight, physical sight of what that looks like. And what do they ask? They want to sit at his right and left when he comes to glory. Let's take that apart a little bit just a chapter ago, they had the same conversation, right? If you remember, um, all 12 were arguing who was gonna be the greatest, and Jesus basically called a huddle. And in the last half of chapter nine and in the, in the, all of chapter 10, there's seven or eight different times Jesus calls a huddle. Um, okay, guys, let's get together. Let's walk through this again. So he's already told them the first will be last. And he said, here, you don't know what you are asking. He, in a sense, says, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. Do you want that? Can you drink that cup? What do they say? Yes. Now, you may say, well, they're just saying that, or you may think a little bit more and say, well, yeah, I think they probably are ready for that. And I would say the latter. I think they are ready for that. But in a sense of their perspective of what the Messiah is and their perspective of what the kingdom is, they're expecting to go into battle. They're expecting Jesus to conquer Rome. They're expecting a military and an earthly kingdom. Why is that? It's because that's the only exposure they've ever had. Whether it's the rulers, authority, leadership, kingdoms, the disciples and us have only experienced those things in this world. And this world is ruled by a different king. This world's ruled by Satan, not by Jesus. We don't know. We're ignorant of the heavens, what rule and power and authority and all that look like in kingdom in the heavens. So they naturally, just as we would have if we were in their position, assume they're going to go to battle, and they're ready to die. They're ready to follow Jesus. Jesus will be the general. They will be their, his, his colonels and majors and, and walk behind him and die with him. They're ready for that. So, so kudos to James and John, on the one hand, for believing that Jesus truly is the Messiah. They got that right, and they're, they're committed. But boy, did they miss the, the whole idea of what Jesus was about. And that's the contrast that we're going to have with the blind, the blind beggar. So what? Jesus, they, they say, yes, we can. And what does Jesus say? He says, yes, you're right, you will die, you will suffer. But they still don't get it. And then the brothers, the other disciples find out, and they also get mad with James and John and showing in my opinion and in others that they too felt the exact same way that James and John did. So all 12 disciples felt this way. They had a total ignorance Of this whole suffering servant thing of this whole idea of an inverted kingdom that Jesus was launching Jesus was about to exercise his full kingdom reign in a sense already here not yet but it wasn't anything that the disciples thought it was so Verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant and James and John, with James and John. Jesus says, all right, guys, let's get together again. This time he goes into a little bit more depth. And if we can pull up that first PowerPoint slide. Jesus goes into talking about this contrast between the kingdom of darkness In the kingdom of light. I know there's a lot of information on there, so I'm going to walk through it. But you have to understand, theologically, from God's perspective, this is what our human reality is. We are under the kingdom of Satan. We have rebelled with him, and he has created over the years, over the centuries, over the millennia, an anti-kingdom of God in, in a sense, everything that Satan comes up with is the opposite, if you will, of God's, right? We already knew this. Well, this is just, it makes perfect sense that the kingdoms of this world and how we understand rule and how we exercise authority is opposite of what actually happens in the heavens with God. So let's just walk through this. First point, Mike's heart is self-centered. I am rebellious in my heart, in my mind. I have Mike on the throne of my heart. Everything's about me. I'm autonomous, right? I I may pledge allegiance to the flag. I may pledge allegiance to my wife, you know, whatever... But in the end, at the end of the day, it's about Mike. Right? I, I satisfy my desires versus Christ center. Christ sits on our hearts. Christ controls the will. Christ is the seat of our passions. Point two, instant gratification and entitlements. I deserve this. I need this now, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, versus having a kingdom perspective in eternal perspective with no entitlements i don't deserve anything i'm a sinner saved by the grace of a god that loves me through the death and resurrection of his son i don't i'm not entitled to anything point three desire to make others submit to us this is how institutions, businesses, families, are ran in our world. It doesn't matter what culture you're in, right? We strive, when we exercise authority, the natural tendency is to have people submit to our will versus the desire to display the Father's attributes, which is what is supposed to happen because we alone of all the creatures carry his image the methodology fights your way to the top right especially those in the in the business world this is how it's done you backstab you steal you bite whatever you need to do to get to the top versus in jesus's kingdom you serve your way down to the bottom in satan's kingdom you rely on yourself In Jesus' kingdom, you rely on the Holy Spirit and you rely on truth. In Satan, you exercise foolish thinking and values as defined against God's wisdom and God's truth, whereas in the kingdom, you exercise love, joy, peace, and mercy. In the kingdom of darkness, leaders destroy the image of God in those that they lead. Versus in Jesus's kingdom, they restore the kingdom of God. If you are a leader in whatever capacity, and I will argue shortly that we're all leaders, we have got to keep that in mind. We have got to be about restoring the image of God. It's not about the task. It's not about the procedure. It's not about the process. And believe me, as an engineer and an engineering manager, I get it. But it's about the person, and it's about the image of God. And that's a hard rule hard lesson to learn. Lastly, when we exercise the way Jesus describes the Gentiles, lording it over their high officials exercising authority, we are displaying the image of our king, King Satan, versus when we exercise everything on the right, we are displaying the image of Christ. Sobering thoughts. The disciples didn't get any of this. And all of us, I would argue, need to learn this again. And we need to have it brought up to us again and again. For me, just sitting down and doing this was a great exercise, a very humbling exercise, because I see my errors as I'm putting these things down in the various roles that I carry. But it's true, we, we have to fight our nature because our nature draws us to the kingdom of Satan because that's what we learned. And we have to deconstruct, we have to unlearn all of that stuff and replace it with the kingdom of light. And that's where the Holy Spirit, that's where this, this is where Bible studies, all of that comes into play. But it's a lifelong process. All right. Um, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on verse 45 uh, later. So we're going to have communion after I get done talking to you guys. And I want to come back to that verse. Um, It's, in a sense, if you know John 3.16, you should know this verse. This is the heart of the gospel. So we're going to come back and use that to launch us into communion. So if you think I'm skipping over and I'm not, I'm coming back. All right, Um, verse 46. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So, first, I want to make a, a comment uh, about the fickle followers. Um, those of you that have been in the church any length of time know you're gonna get hurt by we Christians we are broken and um, we apologize we fickle here here this 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 group that's following Jesus continues to grow and it's probably growing because it's getting closer and closer to both the time and the place of Jerusalem so everybody in this whole region would go up this same road to through Jericho on up to uh, Jerusalem and at this point they're about 15 miles away so it's all uphill they're down basically at the River Jordan and they have to go up to the ridge top of Jerusalem but it's growing group and what do they do you you have another contrast you have Jesus and this large group of followers so most likely Jesus and then his disciples the twelve, and then this large group, they're on the road. Right? All of these people are following Jesus. This is the, the, the picture Mark's trying to create. And here you have it in Luke. There's two, there's two blind beggars um, sitting where? On the side of the road. Right? So they're not on the road. They're not following. They're just sitting on the side. And all of these Followers do what? Rebuke them. As soon as Bartimaeus hears that this is Jesus of Nazareth, he knows this is the Messiah, right? Just the same as the disciples. So the starting point between Bartimaeus and the disciples is the same. Everyone knew the name Jesus of Nazareth in in. Uh, Israel. And everyone knew he had done all of these miracles. Bartimaeus correctly called him the son of David. That's a messianic term. For him and for Jews, the Messiah was the the foretold son of David. He will be the eternal king that will usher in the kingdom that Yahweh has promised. So, Bartimaeus is right there with the disciples on that. And Jesus calls him, right? So, you have these, the, uh, or let me back up a little bit. I got ahead of myself. So, Bartimaeus calls out. He gets rebuked. What happens? The followers, that would be in modern times, that would be like us, rebuke this person that's not on the road. And then what happens? It just causes Bartimaeus to yell all the louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus hears this. It penetrates through the rebuking and says, call him. And instantly the fickle followers flip based on the authority that Jesus says. No, bring this person to me. And now all of a sudden, they're encouraging him to get up. Guess what? He wants to talk to you. And Bartimaeus' response flings off his robe, springs up. It doesn't say how fast he got to him, but he's blind. So he probably rushed as fast as he could to the presence of Jesus. And so just a couple points here. We make mistakes whether it's at a leadership level, whether it's at a brother-sister or sister level, Christians hurt Christians. And we don't necessarily exhibit the kingdom ethics values all the time, 100%. So take heart. Have courage in that. Second and even more important, Jesus does hear you, whether the church hears you or not, whether your brother or sister hears you or not, Jesus not only hears you, he will make an appointment with you. He will call you, and you will be presented to him. So what happens? Same question that that, uh, Jesus asked James and uh, Zebedee. He now asks, sorry, James and John, son of Zebedee, he asks Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? James and John asked the wrong question. They asked a question that was not possible, first of all, but that was not kingdom-oriented. Bartimaeus asked the right question. His starting point was correct. He understood isaiah 53 he understood that the kingdom that jesus was bringing was based on suffering he understood he needed saving it wasn't about a war with flesh and blood he himself needed a savior he needed the messiah because he knew the messiah could heal So what does he say? He says, Rabbi, which is even a higher level of respect than what James and John said, teacher. I want to recover my sight. I want to see again. What does Jesus say? Go. Your faith has healed you. So Jesus was the one that exercised power to heal him. But why did he do it? He did it because of this Bartimaeus' faith and because he asked the right question. He understood Jesus's role. He understood the kingdom that Jesus was dying for, literally. And it's interesting, Jesus says, go your way, actually, in the Greek. If you looked at it, it's not just go in the NIV. It's go your way. So, you, know, you don't. he's not asking Bartimaeus to follow him, but that's what Bartimaeus does. He immediately received his sight and he followed along the road. He was going with Jesus to the suffering. He was going to support his Savior all the way through suffering. Um... How much time do I have? Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Okay, so uh, let's go to the next slide, number two. I want to talk a little bit more about leadership, and uh, you may or may not consider yourself a leader, um, but God does. I um, His image is embedded in each one of us. And our call as Christians is to do the good works with which he has prepared us to do. And we are to be a fragrance. We are to be a sacrifice and we are to be a fragrance, as 2 Corinthians 5 talks about. We're either going to be a beautiful smelling fragrance to those uh, that desire life or a rotten smelling fragrance to those that seek death. And that is a measure of what kingdom you're in. Are you in the kingdom of darkness? Are you in the kingdom of life? But if you define leadership as influence, every Christian has got to be a leader. And we have to be a servant-based leader. So there's a book written um, by Ralph Enloe Jr. He's the uh, previous president uh, of an organization called the Association of Biblical Higher Education. And this book is called The Leader's Palette, Seven Primary Colors. It's, it's a simple simple book, but it's biblical-based. And he identifies seven different colors, if you will, that we as leaders can use. And you can picture, uh, uh, I'm not sure what they're called, but the the, the painting palette mixed boards. And um, each of these seven primary colors would be on that. And as we lead, we can choose which one we're going to talk about. But these are leadership identities, if you will, attributes for a Christian leader. Number one is incarnational. We lead by character. We don't lead by skill. We don't lead by directives. We don't lead by commands. We lead by character it's an inside-out thing. Number two, relational. We lead by authentic relationships. We don't try to hide our brokenness. We don't try to hide our past wounds. In a sense, we celebrate them humbly because they show the grace that God has given us individually and how he has transformed us into who we are. And that ladies and gentlemen, is empowering. It's been empowering to you. I guarantee if you are a Christian, someone has done that with you and it has been an empowering story in your life. And so we as leaders need to be about that process even though it may be scary. Three, developmental. We're about mentoring. We identify, develop, and then release giftedness in those that God brings to our influence. We are intentional about developing them and developing their image of God. Directional, we understand the mission and the vision of the kingdom of God, and we execute it in community. We don't execute it in a top-down way. We collaboratively find ways within whatever, whether it's a family, whether it's a church, whether it's a business, whatever community it is, how can we best serve the Lord? How can we best serve the kingdom? Five, ecological, and this isn't just the physical environment, it's any environment, again, those same social institutional structures, but we exercise environmental sensitivity and nurturing in community. We have got to remember we live in a fallen world. We live in the kingdom of Satan. Satan is constantly warring with the kingdom of God. If we cannot create a loving community that is safe, none of this is going to happen. It's got to be sincere. It's got to be safe. It's got to be nurturing. Six, situational. So we understand things are changing and we adapt. I mean, here we are, uh, two months almost into the Ukraine-Russian war. We were so looking forward to get out and out of COVID. Boom, now we have almost a world war. What's next? I, I do not know. We've got recession, we've got war. We have to just continue to expect these things. But going back to the previous slide, our hope, And our sight is on eternity. It's not on me, and it's not on the moment. And then lastly, doxological. We intentionally foster people's movement towards God in in words, in actions, in everything. It's all about growing up the body of Christ to be more like Jesus Going to say any questions, but I don't don't I don't don't ask me any questions. I got in trouble for that. Let me uh, let me just close with a couple comments. Um, if you are not a Christian, stay tuned. Don't leave if you're streaming. Don't leave um, when I say my prayer because you need to hear this next few minutes. Uh, or if you're here, don't tune me out. Verse ten forty five is important, and it's what ultimately the disciples didn't get. We have got to understand Jesus on Jesus's terms, not Satan's terms, not our terms, because our terms, remember, have been formed by Satan. They're broken. They're foolishness. We've got to accept him on his terms, and the disciples didn't do that yet. They will. For you that are Christians, take this to heart. This is not an overnight change. This is a lifelong process. But we have to contextualize our existence this way. It's it's the way the Bible presents the gospel. It's the way the Bible presents human history. It's, it's unique to the Bible. The Bible is God's perspective told with human authors. So what, what we see, we get to see Isaiah 53 in parallel with Mark 10. The disciples didn't, right? But we're looking at it from God's perspective. So we can make these comparative analyses. And we can see God's hand moving in all of this stuff. And we know where Jesus is headed we know what happens already on Good Friday. Right? They didn't. They were told, but they didn't get it. Understand each of us is broken. Understand each of us is in a different point in learning and unlearning the things of unlearning the things of this world and learning the things of the kingdom. Have patience with one another. Encourage one another. Love one another one another exercise mercy to one another let me pray father we thank you for this text we thank you so much for your son who without him we would have no hope we would have no life we would have nothing you are a god of love and a god of grace we thank you and we pray your Spirit, Your Word, and each other, your church, empower, encourage, exhort us to deeper and deeper walks with Jesus. Amen. All right, we're going to look at that last text now. We're going to move into kind of a communion. Thing. Oh, I even dim the lights. All right. Um, so let me read this verse. This is a very well-known verse. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many what the disciples didn't get was they needed to be served you need to be served I need to be served if you are not a Christian you need to be served we need a Savior the goal regardless of what this world says The goal of life is to be in shalom with god we we can't do that we can't even approach god we can't even turn to god without the work in the person of jesus christ he is the servant he we until we accept that accept that we need him That he serves us, we can in no way serve him or the kingdom. So if you have never accepted Jesus as your son, or as your father, as your savior, sorry, um, consider it now. This is a great opportunity. You've had the gospel spoken to you, you are not with walking with god in in this time spirituality was was a given everyone believed in some god today it's totally different god is not even talked about we've we've eliminated him from our from our culture for those of you that are saved praise God praise God that you understood you needed a Savior and as we prepare for communion cleanse your hearts confess your sins we all need Jesus he and he alone took our sins my sins, your sins The disciples' sins, the world's sins. And he was the sacrifice that God put them on. It's called substitutionary atonement, if you want the theological term. This is what ransom for many, in a sense. Can we go to the next slide? ransom for many the word ransom in the greek means it's related to slavery and it's a transaction where a slave is bought back so in the time of the new testament you could go into slavery into debt say i wanted to buy a new ox i could make an agreement with the owner that I would basically be a slave to him for whatever period of time to earn off the money that the ox cost. Does that make sense? Well, we were enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to sin until we allow Jesus to serve us without His service, without His ransom, His sacrifice, we won't be free from that that debt. With Jesus, He intentionally gives His life for you. And not just intentionally, He willingly gives His life for you. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. John 8. Eternal damnation is a consequence versus eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus substitutes his life for yours, for mine, for his church. He literally pays our debt. The debt is not f- forgotten. It's not just whitewashed away he pays it we are now free from satan's power we are transferred if you go back to that in your mind don't go back on this from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and and in that process this is how jesus thinks of us and i'm going to read from john 15 verse starting at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love if you obey my commands. You will, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that you know my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no other than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. If you have your communion, Just a little bit later in that, in that book of John, they're going to have communion. And this is a, it's called a covenant. Um, it's called a rite where we as Christians exercise on a regular basis, the death and the resurrection of our son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in memory. It's, it's a thoughtful um, process where we review all of the stuff that we were just talking about. Uh, we review the gospel. We review our place in it. We review our place in the kingdom. And we, we exercise humbleness and servanthood, realizing what God's grace has done to us through his son. So I'm going to walk us through it, and um, I would encourage you to, to pray amongst yourself as we do this. But... On this night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Take the bread. After dinner... He took a cup of wine, he blessed it, and he passed it to his disciples and said, drink. This is the the blood of the new covenant, which I have instigated. Drink this in remembrance of me. Drink. Drink. Let's pray. Jesus, we are eternally grateful. I pray we give you our life, all that we are. I pray you, we give you our heart. Let you reign, let you dream for us. Let your affections become our affections. Let your purposes become our purposes. Let us walk boldly with courage. Let us leap up when you call us. Let us ask the right questions, Father. Let us serve humbly and with truth in honor and for the purpose of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.